Hello, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Okay, so today I'm talking to Kathy Young, who is a freelance writer. She's written for many, many wonderful publications, including Reason, but also now more recently for Arc Digital. And that's kind of where I want to start because we're going to be talking about one of her latest pieces for Arc Digital. And I want to start off by saying something that I never thought in a million years I would ever say, and that is that I have missed discussing intersectionality and modern feminism. Oh, (laughs) never, never thought I would ever in a million years miss that topic, but it almost feels quaint now with everything else that's gone on. But isn't it? Yeah, I know. Like everything's just gone to hell. So let's let's talk about some of the old stuff. It almost feels like a throwback. I know. Right, right. We we can have our own little time warp here. <laughs> yeah. But it is it is kind of relevant again, because in our current situation, oh, yeah. it's yeah. We're, we're kind of having the discussion about race and gender again, and how things are kind of shifting around a little bit. So the piece that you wrote for Arc Digital, Feminism, Racism and the Damsel in Distress, kind of explain the idea behind that piece. Uh, well, I was uh, basically looking at the story that was then um, sort of developing uh, the story that was kind of really at the beginning of our current sort of moment of racial reckoning or whatever you want to call it, uh, which was the Amy Cooper, Christian Cooper story. This is the woman in Central Park, New York who had a confrontation with uh, a guy, uh, an African-American guy, um, about her having a dog that was off a leash. And um, eventually, at some point during the confrontation, she was upset that he was filming her, and she threatened to call the police on him. And it was really sort of extraordinary because she actually specifically mentioned race. Uh, because in a lot of these sort of viral racism videos, the, there's sort of the question of, you know, was there really a racial element to this? And here she specifically says, I'm going to call the cops and say that I'm being threatened by an African-American man. She says it twice. And then she actually also mentions his race when she does call the police. And uh, it it was the story that became really huge. And the woman, um, the the, the man's sister posted this on Facebook. And uh, Amy Cooper ended up losing her job. She's a financial advisor. And uh, she just sort of became this infamous person. And uh, it also sort of fits with the, the Karen meme that is currently very popular. This is the sort of obnoxious um, entitled white woman who uses her privilege, you know, to enforce her preferences. Uh, and, you know, has a huge sense of entitlement. And and I think sometimes it's just sort of used as a synonym for this sort of, um, you know, uh, entitled and sort of racist middle class white woman. Um, and um, Amy Cooper sort of became the symbol of, you know, the Karen. And um, uh, it just became this really um, fascinating um, story in many ways. 
Uh, and th there were several articles that I mentioned. Uh, there, there was an op-ed in the Washington, in the, uh, Washington Post, and I think that there was also one in the New York Times about um, sort of the way that all of this ties into uh, white womanhood and basically the way that white women um, have uh, sort of historically used the image of victimhood uh, to assert power over black men. And then there was a really interesting piece um, that kind of gave me the impetus for writing this um, by uh, Professor Aya Gruber uh, in Slate. Uh, and uh, Aya Gruber um, has a new book out on feminism as, as a factor in mass incarceration. And her argument was, um, which I thought was fascinating, uh, that it's really not only about race, that, uh, you know, yes, obviously race was a factor in this, but there is also a history, like even, uh, even apart from race, of middle-class white women sort of using the police um, as a weapon in controlling male behavior in general, especially sort of lower-class male behavior, and, and, you know, especially, um, you know, non-white men. But uh, really, she sort of ties this into the um, expansion of domestic violence law and uh, just generally, you know, again, sort of the, the use of um, uh, the police by white women as a kind of tool of asserting power. And I thought that was a really, really interesting point. And... Um, um, you know, and I think the, 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 there's uh, the, the, there can be definitely a debate on, you know, is Aya Gruber, for instance, taking this argument too far? You know, is she sort of implying that it's wrong for, you know, women victimized by domestic violence, for instance, to call the police? Um, but, you know, I do think that there's a really interesting dimension there, which really hasn't been discussed very much in kind of mainstream feminism um, of, you know, looking at the ways in which it, what I guess we call benevolent sexism, which is sort of the idea that women deserve um, special protection uh, from violence and, you know, from danger and from other things. Um, the way that that plays into, um, you know, some feminist policies or, you know, some feminist influenced policies, um, you know, like the expansion of domestic violence law um, to the, you know, to the extent, for instance, that, you know, a lot of people have argued that um, restraining orders um, are sort of routinely used in divorce cases, uh, not necessarily always by women, but, you know, more often by women because women have more credibility as victims. And, um, you know, there, there's been a lot of discussion on this in the legal community, including among, you know, female um, attorneys. Uh, the, there was um, a piece written about this in the newsletter of the Massachusetts Bar Association, uh, by Elaine Epstein, an attorney who is, you know, certainly not some, you know, anti-feminist person who was at the time a past president of the uh, Massachusetts Women's Bar Association. And um, she basically wrote that, um, you know, in, in Massachusetts, which has a very, very strong uh, law on restraining orders, 
Uh, this has become a sort of very common strategy in divorce cases, uh, where essentially restraining orders are granted uh, usually to women uh, pretty much upon request or, you know, upon a statement that, you know, you're afraid of your uh, soon-to-be ex-spouse. Um, and that this is used as a tactic in uh, divorce and child custody cases. And it was interesting that the title of her piece, by the way, uh, this is Elaine Epstein uh, of the Massachusetts Bar Association. Uh, the title of her piece was Speaking the Unspeakable. So even at the time, this was a hugely controversial uh, topic. And... Um, you know, so that I, I thought was really um, a kind of interesting connection between the two. Uh, so sort of going from this argument, uh, this sort of intersectional feminist argument that, you know, white women are not necessarily you know, innocent victims, always innocent victims of the patriarchy. And, you know, the, the, that they historically have uh, uh, sort of used their status as these uh, uh, you know, morally pure uh, victims uh, uh, to uh, really deploy a sort of white supremacy against uh, black and brown men. And um, uh, sort of, you know, expanding that to the possibility that the same leverage can also be used against white men, which really complicates the intersectional argument, of course, because in the intersectional framework, um, white men, uh, really, you know, cisgender, heterosexual white men, especially, uh, can never be uh, victims of oppression, uh, certainly not by anybody who kind of ranks lower on the pyramid. Um, so, or, you know, in the hierarchy. Um, so I think that is a very interesting framework um, to explore. And that was what I wanted to do in this piece. Yeah, and I just ordered Gruber's book last night, and I'm really excited to read it. But something that you noted in the piece, and I, I hadn't thought about it in this way before reading it, but now that I've read it, I kind of wonder why I didn't. And that's, you pointed out how Amanda Marcotte, when we're looking at the, the Cooper v. Cooper case, that oh, basically, <laughs> that yeah. in this situation, and this is something that intersectionality has had an issue with for a long time, with this kind of uncomfortable ease of which do we prioritize race or gender basically christian cooper gets the points here because he's black and amy cooper's white so it's like at this moment race has superseded gender as the the right. top thing in intersectionality uh yeah yeah it's a fascinating um situation really because you can point to other uh, instances in which uh, gender definitely superseded race. Uh, you know, there was, uh, for example, uh, a number of people pointed out when the movie The Hunting Ground came out, this is the documentary about um, uh, sexual assault on campus. Uh, I believe that in three of the cases that they profiled uh, that had a named perpetrator, uh, the named perpetrator was uh, African-American. And this was pointed out, I think, by Emily Yaffe, who is, is a critic of the film. And uh, it was just interesting that this is something that completely, um, you know, bypassed the attention of all of the progressive media. 
that just gave this movie unrestrained or, you know, unqualified accolades. Uh, this is in 2015. Uh, this is a movie that was nominated for an Oscar that just got really glowing coverage everywhere. And again, you know, the, 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 this um, uh, angle of race uh, just got completely, uh, completely unnoticed. And um, other people have pointed out that in many of the cases in, uh, you know, in the debate about um, Title IX uh, and the, the campus sexual assault, um, uh, you know, issues and, you know, the battles over that, um, where, you know, many people have been arguing that uh the policies that were instituted under the Obama administration at the beginning of the decade um, really led to an abridgment of due process for students who were accused of sexual misconduct. And I, th there have been many claims that these cases do actually tend to uh, kind of disproportionately have uh, black male defendants. Um, and, you know, I, I've come across cases, uh, there was a, a kind of fascinating case that I wrote about um, um, last year. It was uh, actually, uh, sorry, not last year, it was the year before that, in, in 2018. Um, I wrote about a case uh, that unfolded at Yale uh, in which uh, there was a... Uh, uh, kind of one of those very messy kind of alleged alleged sexual assault stories where the the claim of sexual assault rested on the woman saying that she was uh, um, uh, basically too drunk to consent. Um, she this was um, uh, on Halloween and she uh, basically you know went back to the guy's dorm room. Um, after a Halloween party, and she claimed that uh, he, like even like on her way to his room, she was so drunk that she could barely stand up. Uh, apparently, that is not at all what showed up on the security camera footage. And you know, she was uh, uh, she could be seen like walking with a guy and smiling. So there was a lot of question about you know how much of it was just her sort of not remembering things because yeah, like she was intoxicated, but she was like at the time in possession of her faculties apparently um so anyway the what uh, the guy was acquitted in criminal court uh in new haven and because in that case there actually was she did go to the police and uh, there actually was a uh, court case that ended up you know being resolved in the um the guy's favor and there was huge pressure from um the kind of progressive activist community on campus to nevertheless um expel him from the university and the, the detail that was kind of interesting is that the man in the case was a refugee from afghanistan and um there was actually a detail that uh, that I thought was kind of mind-boggling, which is that in the police notes from the initial interview with the woman, uh, there was a uh, comment uh, from her that was rendered in the interview notes by the police as... Uh, for, uh, the, the, you know, this is her speaking about the, the, the accused... Um, something like Muslim from Afghanistan and then in parentheses, violence accepted. So she clearly said 
something to the effect that basically like this is a guy who thinks that violence is normal because he's a Muslim from Afghanistan. And it just kind of blew my mind that this is something that really didn't like come up at all in the discussions of this case on campus where you have like normally you have people being incredibly sensitized to any sort of racial or religious bigotry, you know, especially toward Muslims who are seen as like one of the uh, victimized classes, you know, especially in the wake of the Muslim ban, um, which this actually would have been pretty close in time to uh, the original case. And this is something that just got completely, uh, completely overlooked. Uh, and I thought that was fascinating. Uh, so sometimes you, you get, you know, like when when the focus of the case is on gender, uh, race often tends to fall by the wayside and vice versa. So it's, it's really interesting because this is something that I've been thinking about just generally about um, the, the whole sort of intersectionality uh, framework. Like the idea of intersectionality, which, you know, which does, by the way, have certain, you know, uh, I mean, I'm a critic of the sort of intersectional dogma, but I do think that if we're talking about, um, you know, the idea that, like the way that people interact uh, or the way people are treated is often influenced by, you know, both race and gender and, you know, other factors like, I don't know, disability, et cetera, et cetera, uh, class. You know, yeah, obviously that's true. And, you know, very often there is a kind of interaction of these different factors. But what really uh, kind of fascinates me about the way that intersectionality tends to be applied in practice by the people who talk about it, you know, by the progressive activists, it's really not so much like, you know, let's look at the way that all of these different factors interact in this case. No, it tends to be like we're going to choose one dimension of this, um, you know, social hierarchy and then frame it entirely in terms of that dimension. Uh, so, like, basically, intersectionality means that in some cases, like, the white woman can be uh, the oppressor because, you know, her gender um, puts her, in, I mean, her race puts her in a position of power, even, you know, despite uh, the fact that, you know, allegedly she is oppressed as a woman. Um but you know when so when you when when you have this uh, the, the, this dimension uh, kind of you know treated as foremost the dimension of race, then like gender tends to go completely by the wayside. So you're really only looking at it through one lens when it's when when it's approached as a case of gender-based violence then all of a sudden we're completely losing sight of the racial dimension in many of these cases. Yeah, like the issue of racial prejudice, uh, like in this Yale case that I mentioned, is completely overlooked. Um, and then, uh, you know, when we have something like the, the Cooper versus Cooper case, um, I mean, I think that you can sort of legitimately make uh, the case that, 
you know, um, maybe Amy Cooper really was scared when, you know, she's in this isolated area of the park. And I should mention, because by now people have probably forgotten the details of that case, you know, Christian Cooper said something to her that I think could have been legitimately perceived as a threat. Um, You know, I... Uh, I'm kind of, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact words now, but he basically what he did was when she refused to leash her dog, uh, he uh, said something like, well, if you're going to do what you want, um, I'm going to do what I want, but you're not going to like it. Now, what he meant was that he was going to give her dog a treat because apparently he's a he's an avid bird watcher, by the way. And apparently this is like what he does when people refuse to leash their dogs. Like his tactic is to offer the dog a treat. And then he says that, you know, people get upset about, you know, a stranger offering a treat to their dogs. So then they they leash it to like keep the dog from running to him to get the treat. Um and by the way, some people have been claiming, and I don't know whether, you know, that was the, the thing that was on Amy Cooper's mind. Uh, some people have been claiming that, you know, this could have been easily perceived as a threat to poison her dog. I don't know. I mean, is that, uh, I don't know if that's what she was thinking. Um, but, you know, I think you could certainly argue that if you're a woman of, you know, fairly small stature, um, with a small dog, you know, so this is not like she had a huge dog that, you know, could have been, you know, seen as uh, protection. Uh, and there's a tall guy who is telling you that he's about to do something that you're not going to like, uh, you know, because you're not complying with his request to leash your dog. Um, I think, you know, under other circumstances, if this was not, if this didn't have a racial angle, I think that, um, you know, somebody like Amanda Marcotte would have um, probably been saying that, oh, you know, this is a woman who is legitimately feeling threatened because, you know, a woman in an encounter with a man uh, always has uh, a sort of awareness in the back of her mind or even maybe not so far in the back of her mind that she may be assaulted sexually or physically or whatever or possibly even murdered. I mean, you know, we've had people like Amanda Marcotte basically argue that any time that, you know, a woman gets, uh, you know, wolf whistled by a guy in the street, you know, she is probably, you know, she, she has a legitimate fear of rape. Um, so I think from that standpoint, uh, I think it's really kind of interesting that in the progressive, uh, you know, chorus of, uh, uh, denouncing Amy Cooper as this evil woman who was, uh, you know, trying to get this guy killed, supposedly, you know, by, um, by calling the police. Um, there was like, there was a complete lack of consideration for the fact that, again, you know, from their standpoint, from the standpoint of like, of, um, the brand of feminism that these same people have generally embraced, um, the threat of male violence is this omnipresent thing in women's lives. And if you're looking at it from that perspective, um, you know, why wouldn't you say that it was completely illegitimate for Amy Cooper to feel completely terrified? And by the way, I've heard a fascinating theory about Amy Cooper's sort of invocation of race in that situation, which kind of makes sense to me, uh, which is that basically she's 
coming sort of from a place not so much of the sort of traditional racism, so to speak, of, uh, you know, like, uh, essentially like saying that, well, you're, you're a black person. So, you know, because of that, I see you as threatening. Uh, The the claim that I've seen is that she is really um, kind of approaching this through the progressive lens of believing that, you know, the police are prejudiced against African-Americans and she's essentially threatening to weaponize like police racism against them uh, because she's assuming that if she tells them that she's being threatened by an African-American man, she's going to get a more aggressive response from the police or where that he's going to be kind of more uh, intimidated by her threat to call the police if she brings up his race, uh, which, you know, which I, I think is certainly still racist in the sense that she's kind of using his race against him to, uh, you know, make her threat to call the police kind of scarier for him. Uh, but it's kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting point that I've seen that it, it also comes like essentially from this progressive, you know, point of view about police racism. So, you know, I, I think that's a kind of fascinating, um, fascinating way of looking at it. And, you know, very, very possibly true. Um, so, you know, so yeah, but I do think that if you had the same kind of encounter uh, involving um, a white man and a white woman, and, you know, this guy was, you know, complained about being harassed by the woman and, you know, filmed her um, while she's, uh, you know, threatening to call the cops if it didn't have a racial angle. I think it's very, very likely that the guy would be the villain in the story. And certainly people like Amanda Marcotte would be saying that, you know, here's a guy who is who essentially films himself harassing a woman and then tries to make her look like a bad person. And by the way, a, a really fascinating story is unfolding right now. I don't know if you're following this Carlos Dillard uh, story. Yeah, I, I saw I saw the video up on Twitter and I'm I'm kind of confused because I saw some people saying that this whole thing might be fake, but even still it's it, even if it is fake, I think in my opinion it's still says something about where we're at because if you look at the replies to the tweet where people are like taking delight in this woman who may or may not be legitimately having her like address and her plate put out on twitter for god knows who to find her like yeah exactly yeah and i think this is uh this is actually you know just a fascinating um fascinating story which is kind of still unfolding um and i guess for those who haven't been following this this is a guy this is a kind of internet um kind of comedian performance artist um and kind of you know shady guy in some ways like people are still trying to figure out you know what his shtick is like apparently he was um uh, like he's currently a sort of black lives matter activist apparently a couple of years ago he was a donald trump voter and you know was kind of disparaging um the, the claims of police racism and the shooting of philando castile who's the you know, Afri- African American gun owner who was uh, fatally shot in uh, in Minneapolis, and um, so Carlos Dillard, who, who currently lives in Seattle, 
um, posted a video on Instagram and then part of it on Twitter where he confronts a woman uh, whom he apparently followed home after she uh, flipped him off. And um, and it's, he, he sort of told several different stories. Like he, he said that initially he said that she cut him off in traffic and then she, like when he honked his horn at her, she flipped him off or something like that. And then he said that she was upset with him for not signaling that he was making a turn and you know because of that she flipped him off so he he sort of told several different stories but what it sort of boils down to is that he he is accusing her of flipping him off in traffic and uh because of that he apparently followed her home and uh then initiated this confrontation uh, where, you know, he, he very aggressively confronts her, uh, calling her Karen, by the way. Like, you know, why did you do this, Karen? Like, like what's your problem, Karen? And this woman is just, and he's filming her license plate. He, he says, you know, by the way, like, this is her license plate. This is where she lives. And this woman is clearly just terrified. Like, she's hyperventilating. She seems, she's sort of shrieking, and she seems to be having this panic attack. And you know, I don't. I don't think it was fake because apparently, like people actually were putting out her home address on in in the guy's thread. And I I would assume that if this was staged, like she would not be at her real address. <laughs> so you know, I mean, this it seems to me like this is probably like a real thing. Um, and you know, and there were people in his thread who were just gloating and, you know, and, and making fun of this woman claiming that she's sort of faking, um, you know, faking distress to essentially like evade responsibility for her actions. And, oh, and then when a neighbor, like one of the neighbors uh, who was passing by and sort of tried to intervene and ask what was going on, at that point, he suddenly claimed that she had also called him a racial slur. Um, and, you know, then suddenly it becomes this uh, this issue of racism. And he, he apparently he's also claiming that the mere fact of her, you know, flipping him off in traffic as a black man uh, was essentially a racist act on her part. Uh, people have been pointing out that he has several other videos where he seems to initiate confrontations with, uh, you know, non-black people. I think there there was like one that, that involved an, an Asian uh, store owner who he also claimed had called him a racial slur. Um, and, you know, that was not in the video, by the way. So he sort of apparently seems to have a history of doing this stuff. And he, uh, the he's like and now he's basically like selling a t-shirt uh that is based on this confrontation and uh, so there, there's a very strong suspicion that he's um, doing this for self-promoting reasons um but you know it's kind of interesting that this is like this is a huge story on you know in certain uh, you know sectors of twitter and Unlike the Amy Cooper story, uh, this has gotten really kind of zero coverage in the mainstream press. 
so, you know, it's kind of interesting to me that, again, like right now, I think we're we're in a moment when uh, the racial angle is the one that kind of gets all the attention. Uh, because, you know, under other circumstances, I could very easily see this being uh kind of you know hugely blowing up as a story of uh, like street harassment of women like here's a woman who uh you know gets followed home by a guy who starts filming her and you know verbally abusing her uh because of a um of a confrontation in traffic and uh you know and i think that if you uh kind of flip it around and look at the gender angle um you know you would kind of think that uh, progressive feminists would be on this woman's side and uh they're really not they're they're being kind of awfully quiet about this and i think that that's uh uh, that's really fascinating. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm sort of, I'm very old fashioned about this. Like my solution is you really do need to look at the individual regardless of, and, you know, obviously race and gender sort of factor into these things in many ways. But, you know, ultimately, I think you have to, you know, take sides based on, you know, who's right and who's wrong. And I do think, by the way, the, in the Amy Cooper situation, um, I think that she was clearly in the wrong. I don't really necessarily believe that she was feeling that threatened by the guy so much as she was feeling just kind of annoyed because he was you know telling her what to do because if you look at the amy cooper video she's kind of advancing on him very aggressively and like he actually tells her three times uh don't come near me i think is what he says or you know don't come closer so, you know, she's like, if you look at her body language, she's pretty clearly the, the aggressor physically, uh, despite being smaller. And, um, you know, and I think people have legitimately pointed out that, uh, you know, w- when she calls the police, like her entire demeanor changes and her her voice, like her tone changes from one of kind of anger and aggression to, uh, uh, you know, suddenly she starts crying and she, you know, she she's sort of talking in a higher pitched voice and she's just sort of sounding terrified. And um, and I think, you know, you uh, I, it's quite believable to me that, you know, it, it, she was kind of faking, uh, faking uh, distress. Um, on the other hand, you know, this woman in the uh, in the uh, Dillard uh, story, uh, it seems to me really is sort of legitimately terrified. Uh, he's filming her license plate. You know, he's essentially telling people where she lives. And and I'm sure that, you know, he's accusing her of racism. And I'm sure that things are going through her mind, you know, including the fate of Amy Cooper, who, you know, lost her job and became this complete social pariah because of this viral video. And, um, you know, and I think, uh, I mean, I, I, I do think it's a positive thing that we have not found out this woman's name. Uh, you know, there really hasn't been, like, despite apparently several people doxing her in the uh, Twitter thread, uh, her name really has not become, like, I mean, I don't know what her name is. I'm sure I could find out if I tried, but, you know, I have uh, no interest in doing so. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that's a positive thing. But, you know, I think that they're really 
should be more media attention to the story because you know I do think that the the, the, the these sort of viral racism videos are a very very double edged sword. Um, you know, with um, there have been several cases where uh, you know when when we look at the context and when the context emerges, it turns out that this is really not you know. Uh, what we initially saw in a snippet of video wasn't necessarily, um, you know, everything that um, uh, that happened. Uh, like there, there was a story that I don't know if you're aware of, uh, where the, this woman uh, who was an employee at Chipotle uh, was fired after a video that uh, turned up on the internet that supposedly like showed her refusing service to a group of black men. Uh, saying that, you know, she's not going to serve them unless they pay in advance. And then it turned out, uh, and the, 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 again, like there was a huge outcry and this woman got fired. And then I think two or three days later, somebody, like some internet sleuth, like realized that something about the video felt off. Uh, like I, I think he uh, heard the woman say something about how they had been there before, and like he realized that this was sort of a continuation of some previous uh, encounter. And it turned out that these guys apparently had a history of uh, essentially being dine and dash thieves and had bragged about it like on the, in the social media, where they had a history of like you know getting meals and then running off without paying and apparently they had done that at the same establishment and this woman had recognized them so you know they were not being refused service because of their race uh and this uh, woman was actually offered a job back but i think decided not to take it back um so yeah i mean i think that th that there is a real a real danger of um you know uh the, these uh uh, racism videos being weaponized and you know which is not to say that you know some of them aren't quite real and i mean i can see the value uh in certain situations of exposing um you know uh, racist behavior uh, uh but you know i do think that there's a legitimate concern of you know first of all are we like turning every little uh, you know, conflict in everyday life and to uh, this sort of national story. And if you can find a racial angle in it. And secondly, um, you know, are we getting the full context? And, you know, is, it seems to me that it's very, very possible for completely uh, innocent people to get seriously screwed over by, uh, you know, being portrayed as racist, and we've kind of wandered away from the <laughs> theme of, um, you know, the, the of intersectional feminism and and race. But I guess it does all kind of fit in because, uh, as as we were saying, I think it's just interesting that, um, you know, the, 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 there really isn't like the the promise of looking at these encounters through an intersectional framework really doesn't seem to materialize so far because, you know, it's like either it's either or like either we're looking at things like this, you know, through the uh, prism of gender and sort of ignoring what may very well be legitimate issues of uh, racism or, you know, racial uh, uh, prejudice uh, or we're looking at this entirely through the prism of race, 
and ignoring what may very well be a legitimate angle of gender, um, you know, gender issues and, uh, you know, gender-based intimidation. And to bring it back to something that you had brought up um, on Amy Cooper's little phone call there, that sort of code switch that happened from when she was talking to Christian Cooper to when she was talking to the police. And this is also something that you brought up in the piece, but kind of unpacking this cliche of female victimhood and how it can be weaponized in certain situations to kind of get your way in a way that's not 100% kosher. It's a bit manipulative, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it is it is a gender stereotype, but, you know, sometimes stereotypes sexually are true. I mean, not about everyone. And I certainly would say that, like, if someone claims that, all women do this all the time, uh, that would certainly be misogynistic. But, you know, do some women sometimes do this? Yes, you know, obviously they do. Um, I mean, you know, it's kind of like, you know, if you talk about men being violent to women, it doesn't mean that, you know, all men are, you know, all men are abusers, but some certainly are. And I think you can talk about, uh, the fact that, you know, just like men um, sometimes do use their advantage and physical strength and, you know, size and muscle and so on, um, I think women, um, you know, for partly for cultural reasons, I think they do indeed weaponize victimhood. And I think it is very kind of narrow and reductive to suggest that this happens only in um, cases involving race. Um, I mean, yeah, certainly in some cultural contexts, you know, in the, in the, say, in the Jim Crow South, there certainly was a kind of special... Um, you know, status that was reserved for the white woman who claimed to be victimized by a black man. And like, if we look at something like, you know, the To Kill a Mockingbird, we see that like, even the lowest status woman who's sort of, you know, white trash, and you know, comes from the, you know, family that's despised by everyone in the town, uh, even she can sort of claim status and sympathy if she claims to have been raped by a black man. Um, so I think certainly in that cultural context, I think race is paramount, uh, where, you know, the, the same woman, if she had accused, let's say, a... Uh, you know, higher status white man of rape uh, probably or almost certainly would have had a very, very difficult time um, having her claim heard in court and, you know, would be almost certain not to win. Uh, but I think in the in the modern day context, um, uh, I think that there is a way uh, and especially in the context of ironically of some of the uh, you know, legal changes uh, and cultural changes that have been uh, brought about by feminism. Um, I think it's, I think part of what's happened is to sort of expand the opportunities for women to weaponize um, victimhood against men. And it it's not even necessarily only white women. I mean, we saw in the... Um, 
uh, Ducal Cross case that there, you know, it was it, by the early 2000s, it was possible for a a sort of lower class black woman who was uh, who was a, an exotic dancer. So you know, somebody who you know a couple of generations ago would be you know seen as having no claims whatsoever you know against uh, a white man or white men who uh, committed sexual violence against her uh, in you know in in the modern context uh, she can also deploy a claim of victimhood uh, basically for retaliation against several um, upper class, you know, affluent white guys who, you know, with whom she had a dispute when she, uh, uh, you know, performed at the um, uh, uh, performed at the lacrosse team party, and uh, you know, and I think it's certainly something that's useful to keep in mind uh, in looking at the, um, you know, the modern context of. Um, relations between women and men. Um, I think it is important to recognize that, you know, yes, on the one hand, you know, it is a good thing that we've enabled women to uh, kind of get a fair shake when it comes to being sexually victimized. And, you know, we're no longer, you know, sort of putting the victim on trial and asking about her sexual history and suggesting that, you know, if she's sexually promiscuous, she, um, you know, must have wanted whatever happened in this specific situation. Uh, but on the other hand, um, in doing so and in expanding these legal opportunities for women, we also have created, in some cases, the danger that, um, you know, innocent men may see this power wielded against them and may really kind of have their lives devastated. Uh, and like even those uh, guys at, uh, at Duke University who were um, essentially like, you know, affluent, uh, you know, white college students at, at Duke University, you know, who were on the lacrosse team, um, who were able to afford uh, high-quality legal help, uh, you know, they went through a really pretty terrifying ordeal in which uh, they were not only kicked out of school, you know, pending the resolution of the case, uh, but they were denounced by everybody, and they were just sort of very, very widely presumed to be guilty and were trashed in the media. And, um, you know, it eventually turned out to be really pretty definitively innocent. Um, so I think that that is, is something important to remember. And I think that if we're going to look fairly at um, the relations between men and women, we have to remember that, you know, when... Um, you know, when we empower women as victims, uh, this can work not only for actual victims, but unfortunately also for fake victims who may weaponize uh, victimhood uh, for, you know, self-interest or retaliation or whatever. Uh, so I think, you know, and, and obviously that doesn't mean that, you know, we turn back the clock and kind of go back to, uh, you know, the bad old days when women were having a very hard time uh, getting their legitimate claims heard. But I think that we do need to be more aware of 
Um, you know, the possibility of false accusations. And I think uh, certainly the something like the Amy Cooper situation uh, really should raise questions about the kind of the believe women mantra. Uh, because, you know, here we actually see on video uh, that this woman who, you know, is a very convincing victim on the phone is actually not you know, is actually not being truthful. Like, she is claiming that this guy is threatening her. We have seen that that is not what happened. And yet, you know, she sounds very credible. So when, you know, when we have this uh, uh, kind of framework in which, uh, you know, people talk about a credible victim, uh, what does that mean exactly? I mean, does that mean that you uh, kind of make an emotionally compelling case uh, well, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. And, and we're actually seeing in this case that um, that it's not that, you know, as you said, it's a kind of code switch. Um, uh, so I think that is something that uh, really should, um, you know, should um, give us pause in uh, kind of making an absolute dogma of believing uh, believing the accuser. And obviously, again, like the answer is not to say, well, no, n- never believe women. Like women lie about rape all the time. And, you know, <laughs> and, you know, you, you sort of see that in certain segments of the uh, kind of the men's rights, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, corners of the internet where you really do see a lot of misogyny and there's a kind of, uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of presumption that, you know, women are you know, evil, manipulative liars. And well, some are, you know, some just again, just like some men are, you know, rapists and abusers and some women, uh, some women are abusers in their own way, which often involves, um, you know, less the use of physical strength than the use of manipulation, including weaponizing the police. So I think, you know, the the, the real lesson, I think, is just to be more uh, circumspect in um, judgments of any situation until we know all the facts. And kind of the other flip side, well, not even the flip side, but like the other component um, the whole idea of female victimhood. And while we're on the topic lately of discussing campus behaviors that are seeping to off-campus places, this is the one that really kind of scares me. And that's this idea that feminism is teaching women that all men pose a threat to them. So you do have these cases where the the idea of female victimhood is being kind of weaponized to be used in a manipulative way. But then you also do have this situation where women can genuinely feel like every man is a threat. And that is the one, I mean, as much as we talk about how much the the whole speech thing, what's going on in the media is dangerous, this is the one that's going to do the damage to society here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there are a lot of things going on right now that can do damage to society. So I wouldn't zero in necessarily on just one. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that I, and I've seen this playing out like even before, because uh, I've been following a lot of this sort of crazy social justice stuff uh, for years. Like I, I first noticed it. I, and I think I said this on Twitter, I first started noticing this on uh, Tumblr, um, yeah, like around, I think, 2013, maybe. And one of the things that I 
that, that kind of drew my attention. Um, I remember that uh, th there was a th there was a sort of freeform poem that somebody posted um, that was basically sort of attempting to depict the everyday life of a woman. And like the whole idea was that like you're walking to your car and you're sort of clutching your keys in your hand, you know, in case you have to defend yourself. And all you can think about is the statistic that one in three women will be raped or something. And I just thought, you know, this is completely insane. Like you, you, the idea that you would be sort of going about daily life you know, thinking constantly that you have a one in three chance of being raped, which is really, because if you're talking about like being raped by a stranger in the street on the way to your car, I mean, the, the, your lifetime chance of that happening is probably really more like one in a hundred, you know, because uh, the, the, the well, I mean, first of all, the, the majority, and it's even sort of been discussed by feminists that the majority of rapists are actually, you know, usually people that the woman knows. Uh, we get into the definition of rape, and you know what? A, a lot of these surveys use really very, very broad criteria for what they define as rape. A lot of it has to do with, again, intoxicated sex uh, that you may, like, retroactively decide that, you know, it wasn't wanted. Um, a lot of it may have to do with, like, feeling emotionally coerced. And it's interesting that if you do these surveys, um, you know, with both sexes, you usually find that actually a lot of men will also say that they've had situations of um you know, being emotionally coerced uh, or, you know, in some way uh, um, kind of, you know, pressured into unwanted sex. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the statistics are really very, very uh, inflated. And, uh, and, and it just struck me at the time that it's completely insane, like, to... Um, to inculcate that kind of victimhood mentality in women... And this, the, you've probably heard this um, uh, concept of Schrodinger's rapist, you know, as in, you know, Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> so it's sort of like, you know, any, like the cat, like if there's a cat in a box, I mean, you, you know, the whole thing, like you don't know whether it's alive or dead. So it's sort of like both alive and dead at the same time or whatever. So this is like Schrodinger's rapist is basically the concept that like when you see a, when you encounter a man you have no idea whether he's a rapist or not. So, like, presumptively, every man that you run into is a potential rapist. And it's actually really, like, in, in the context of what we've been discussing, it's really kind of evident to me that they haven't thought this through very well in the context of race. Because, you know, like, if every man is a rapist, uh, potentially... Uh, then it's actually entirely uh, like reasonable for a woman who, for a white woman who sees a black guy uh, in the street, to assume that he may be a rapist and to act accordingly. Uh, so you know, I don't know how exactly this again, like the, the intersectionality doesn't really seem to apply very well in this case. Um, 
because again, like that whole idea is being processed entirely through the prism of gender with no thought given whatsoever to like how it interacts with race. Um, uh, but yeah, it's kind of a terrifying uh, way to go through life. And, uh, um, you know, um, I think uh, it certainly creates many uh, potentially dangerous situations. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it really just imposes this, uh, and really, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of disabling to women because if it results in like women not going to certain places, uh, if it results in, you know, women being constantly anxious about being attacked, um, I mean, you know, that first and foremost has a kind of deleterious effect on women and really prevents women from taking full advantage of um, the opportunities that they have. Um, I mean, are women, I mean, I think obviously it's true that women are more physically vulnerable than men, generally speaking, you know, women are physically smaller and weaker. Um, I mean, that's a fact. Uh, women are more uh, vulnerable to sexual violence, generally speaking. Uh, you know, at the same time, uh, does this mean that you have to constantly go through life, you know, thinking that you may be uh, raped and murdered at any moment? No, not really, because generally speaking, you know, except in certain high crime areas, uh, your risk of that happening are pretty small um and you know i i, I there, there there have been several cases that were kind of very widely publicized and that i thought again were just uh i mean they, they were terrible cases but ones that were uh kind of blown just insanely out of proportion uh, in terms of their applicability to all women. Like there was one case, I don't know if you remember, this happened, I think a few months ago. I mean, I th I'm sure we're all getting a distorted sense of time because of just how crazy, you know, the news cycle is right now. But I think this was a few months ago where a woman was murdered um, by a guy. And I think this was like a homeless guy with mental problems uh, who like, um, called out to her when she was in a garage walking to her car and I think he just, you know, catcalled her or whatever or, you know, uh, like, yelled some sort of, like, invitation to, you know, go out with him or whatever and uh, she ignored him and then he basically followed her to her car and killed her. I mean, I think he either stabbed her or, like, beat her to death or something. I mean, it was a horrible, horrible case. But I remember if feminists like basically saying well see this is why we think that catcalling is such a serious problem because like uh, when people say that a woman who gets catcalled can just ignore it you know well this is what happens if you ignore a guy who's catcalling you like come on like and what is the actual like risk in terms of like actual percentage like how likely is it that a guy who catcalls you is going to follow you and kill you. I mean, you know, it's probably fairly close to like the risk of being struck by lightning. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that we all face higher risks every day. Like your risk of being killed in a car accident, I'm sure is much, much higher. Uh, I mean, you probably have a higher risk of like drowning in a bathtub. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, and again, it's not to make light of this case, which is 
obviously, you know, horribly tragic and, um, you know, tragic for this woman's family and just, you know, really, really terrible in every way. Um, but at the same time, you know, you really can't just, uh, you know, take that kind of very extreme case and, uh, uh, you know, apply that to uh, everyday situations. And um, I, I think um, there, there was uh, there have been a couple of cases in which, you know, women uh, were murdered after turning down, you know, a guy's like after turning down a guy who tried to hit on them in a bar, you know, stuff like that. And then I think there was a there was a case where the guy like followed her outside and stabbed her. Um, there, there, there was uh, there was a case in which a guy in high school, I think, killed a girl after she turned down his invitation to be his prom date. And again, the narrative that you get is like, well, women are afraid to say no to men because when you say no to a man, he may kill you. And I mean, again, that is such an overwrought and, you know, really ridiculous way of um, of looking at these incidents. Because again, like by the same token, if you apply this in a different context, if you said, for instance, I mean, there, there, uh, there have been cases of people getting... Uh, like stabbed by a panhandler when you know after refusing to give them money uh if somebody says well if somebody if some conservative said you know well anytime you see a homeless person in the street you know you you know you're constantly aware you know as a you know law-abiding you know affluent working american you you're constantly aware that you know this uh, the, this homeless person that you see in the street may rob you and you may, may kill you rob you you know rape you whatever uh that would be legitimately perceived as you know this completely bizarre hysterical you know proposition that is uh you know fomenting prejudice against the homeless uh, likewise i mean i think people have no trouble seeing how completely overrun and hysterical this is when it comes to illegal immigrants well it's like every time that uh you know somebody uh either gets murdered by an illegal immigrant or you know even like killed in a car accident uh, where an illegal immigrant was at the wheel uh you get the sort of you get the trump type saying well we well you see illegal immigrants you know we're all getting slaughtered by these illegals you know who are you know invading us and you know killing us and you know running us down cars and you know whatever and it, then you get progressives pointing out that actually this is incredibly rare and and then you get the sort of well even one is too many and so on and so forth and uh, you know so so this is the kind of mentality that very rightly kind of gets called out by progressives as, uh, you know, complete nonsense and hysteria when it gets applied to illegal immigrants. And yet when, you know, you get the kind of the equally rare case in which a woman uh, gets murdered by a man after turning him down uh, for a date, um, you get this narrative that, oh, you know, women are so terrified of men that they, you know, they, 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 they don't feel safe saying no to a man. And I'm sure, you know, I mean, I'm sure if you ask the average man, you know, is it true that women, women don't feel safe saying no? I'm sure you would get 
and answer that, you know, <laughs> it would be like, a, you know, not in my experience. You know, I, um, uh, I think that, you know, most men have, you know, vast experience with uh, women saying no and feeling entirely safe doing so. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think really both women and men are very ill served by uh, promoting these kind of hysterical uh, kind of moral panic uh, narratives. Um, so, you know, I, I think that uh, that certainly goes uh, into this sort of victim as oh, this um, weaponization of victimhood um, kind of mentality, because, you know, I'm, uh, I'm really not sure that this is always necessarily manipulative. I think that in some cases, you know, women really have been taught to, uh, you know, feel that men pose a threat to them at every turn. And I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, this message really comes both from the traditional kind of paternalistic mentality uh, and the supposedly liberating and supposedly empowering feminist uh, uh, message. And, you know, what it, it, it's like everyone across the board politically is, uh, you know, teaching women to be, uh, to be terrified. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, who benefits from that? Um, I mean, I, I, I think... In a way, it is a power play by these ideologies that, because you really do have these competing ideologies of both kind of traditionalist conservative uh, ideologies and feminist ideologies that vie for the role of protector of women. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, that's really interesting. And, uh, you know, I would really prefer to see uh, and more genuinely empowering kind of feminism where, you know, obviously we're aware of the fact that in some situations women are, as I said, you know, more vulnerable than men. Um, and I think we have to recognize that. But I think we also need to take a realistic view of, um, you know, of, well, for instance, the fact that if you look at crime statistics, uh, white women, especially, are really the safest demographic in America. You know, like the the the, the lifetime risk of being murdered. Um, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I mean, I think it's basically like for uh, like the the lifetime risk of being murdered for white women is really the lowest of any group, other than possibly Asian American women. Um, and certainly, you know, I, I believe like if you look at the overall gender breakdown, like I think close to 80 percent of murder victims are men. Uh, most victims, even like robbery and aggravated assault, I, I, I think um, uh, male victims certainly outnumber female victims. Um, obviously, sexual violence is something that happens you know, more, uh, much more often to women, although it's kind of interesting that I, I've seen the claim that if you look at sexual violence in prisons, uh, you may actually get the result that like maybe overall, actually, if you count prison rapes, uh, it may actually be true that overall more men than women get sexually assaulted. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I've, I mean, I've seen 
those calculations. I mean, I take all advocacy statistics with a grain of salt. And I mean, those stats did, I believe, come from like prison rape, um, you know, activist groups dealing with prison rape. So again, I think you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt. But I mean, I think it's very likely that there that we do tend to like underestimate the uh, prevalence of sexual violence against men at the same time that we're kind of redefining sexual violence against women in ways that uh, uh, kind of makes it appear a, an, a a bigger problem than it actually is, you know, if recounting like every instance of, you know, like drunk sex that you may later feel ambivalent about. Uh, I mean, I think that's uh, certainly a kind of vast expansion of uh, female victimization. And, you know, and I think these circumstances, like if we're talking about uh, either being talked into unwanted sex or being like, quote unquote, emotionally coerced or being like, or having like, possibly unwanted sex because you're intoxicated, not like actually passed out, but like maybe your judgment is not at its best. I think those are situations where we really should be asking women to uh, like take more responsibility. And I think it's kind of ridiculous to, uh, uh, to designate that as victim blaming. So, you know, I mean, I think that if, if we're talking about situations in which you can like, avoid having unwanted sex at no physical risk to yourself, then I really think it's on you. I mean, you know, I think that you um, you really should be expected, whether you're female or male, to like be able to stand up for yourself and, uh, and say no. I mean, this idea that... Uh, and again, and by the way, this also goes into like this whole this inflation of danger where people say, you know, the, the argument that I've seen is that, well, you know, women may have non-consensual sex because they're too scared to say no. Because, of course, if you say no, uh, you know, the guy may very well cut you into small pieces. Uh, well, again, that really does not happen very often. And I think most women... Um, I mean, a lot of the time, even like if you look at what these narratives of, uh, you know, having unwanted sex because you don't feel comfortable saying no, it's really not like generally those stories don't involve women saying, well, I was afraid that he was going to physically hurt me if I said no. It's really more like I didn't quite know how to say no without like hurting the guy's feelings. And again, if you look, if you start asking uh both men and women questions about you know that type of encounter you actually find that you also have you know very very high numbers of men who you know feel in some sense pressured or coerced by women uh and you know and i think we should be able to discuss that i mean is is a you know, is it a bad thing to emotionally or, you know, psychologically pressure someone into having sex with you? Yes, of course it's bad. Should, you know, should we be like telling people not to do that? Yes, of course. Uh, should we be calling this rape? Uh, I really don't think so, because I think in a way that really cheapens the 
you know, the the, the victimization of uh, of people who really are like physically forced or threatened with violence. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the, uh, the the kind of the victimization creep that we've been seeing is a very very bad thing, and uh, and again, you know, I, I think it promotes. Uh, uh, you know, encounters in which, um, you know, female, well, both, you know, both f- genuine fear of victimization and uh, the kind of manipulation of uh, uh, victim status. I think both of those, as in the Cooper versus Cooper case, uh, really can uh, you know, potentially pose a danger to men, you know, especially, I would say, you know, in many situations, uh, uh, black men who really, you know, are viewed with more suspicion by the police. But, you know, it's really not just black men. I mean, there is a lot of evidence. Uh, and I, I looked at those studies that a lot of the time, you know, the police, like in domestic violence cases, uh, there really is a kind of presumption of guilt uh, against men. And, you know, interestingly enough, feminist literature, like, or even like literature uh, that is used in training uh, in many police departments, literature that is used in training cops how to respond to domestic violence cases, Um that, you know, literature that has been, like, compiled uh, with consultation by domestic violence activists, um, often, like, using federal funds under the Violence Against Women Act, uh, really pretty much tells the police to be prejudiced against, to be biased against men in domestic violence cases, because a lot of the time, like, the criteria for determining who the primary aggressor is in... uh, in domestic violence uh, is really pretty openly kind of biased uh, in terms of suggesting that, uh, like, if there's mutual violence, you really kind of have to presume that the man is the aggressor. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think, uh, I mean, it's it's often, like, not explicit, but... Uh, um, but I mean, they will say things like, well, you have to consider like who has the power. And I think a lot of the time the, the, the assumption really is that, uh, the person in power is the man. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that there is a, um, uh, you know, just as there is, um, a kind of racial bias in, in many of these situations, I think that there is, um, a gender bias against men in, uh, uh, you know, in in looking at sort of male female confrontations, I think, um, and it's interesting though. By the way, I've heard um, uh, I, I this was admittedly years ago when I was uh, I, I have a book called Ceasefire on gender issues that came out in in 1999. So obviously that was a somewhat different time, but I remember that at the time I interviewed. Um, a couple of uh, female police officers who had worked on domestic violence cases. And I remember that one of them especially basically said that, uh, you know, male cops tend to be, uh, you know, really, really kind of tend to have the chivalry thing going. And like, they will just sort of a lot of time just automatically presume 
in a given like situation where maybe both people have engaged in violence like they will presume that uh, the woman is telling the truth and you know they will presume that the man is more to blame and she actually said that female cops kind of tend to uh be tougher on women <laughs> so so i thought that was kind of interesting uh um again i don't know to what extent you know the dynamic may, may may have shifted since then uh but it's really like one thing that i thought that I, I think is really fascinating is that when like in the wake of the violence against women act of uh, 1994 which by the way joe biden was instrumental in getting passed um there was uh, like one of the things that the violence against women act did was create incentives for uh uh, like jurisdictions to have mandatory arrest in domestic violence cases, because uh, I think like there were federal grants uh, for um, for the police, and I think to be eligible, you really had to show that like you either had a mandatory arrest policy in domestic violence cases, or at the very least, you had a kind of strong presumption in favor of arrest. And one thing that happened uh, when those policies went into effect is that arrests of women in domestic violence cases just skyrocketed. I mean, they went from, like, 5% of the total, like, of all domestic violence arrests to, like, 25 to 30%. And then uh, the response from uh, feminist activists who had been pushing for these policies was to say, oh, like, this is, like, this is victims getting punished by the police for, you know, for calling 911. And this is, like, victims getting arrested for fighting back. And this is really not what the research shows. I mean, research actually shows that, you know, a surprisingly high number of, uh, you know, high percentage of domestic violence is committed by women. Um, You know, it doesn't generally cause as much injury, uh, although, you know, a lot of the time it does involve, like, the use of household implements as weapons and, uh, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Um, uh, and, you know, I th- again, if you look at mutual violence, there's a lot of evidence that, um, you know, it's initiated by women um, as often as it is by men. And it's really not primarily about women acting in self-defense. And yet you know, the response from the feminist community to more women getting arrested for domestic violence was really not to say, oh, well, it looks like women are, like, more domestically violent than we thought they were. It was to say, well, how can we stop women from getting arrested? So I think, again, there's this sort of convergence of feminism and benevolent sexism uh so-called which is you know sort of sexism that favors women um in terms of like paternalistic chivalrous assumptions of uh you know female vulnerability and victimhood and the convergence between that and feminism i think is just really fascinating and again that kind of takes us back to i Ruber's piece and um you know, the uh, the whole kind of premise of weaponized uh, female victimhood. I think at this point, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. Cause I could probably do like another two hours on this topic. But... Yeah, I'm sure we could easily <laughs> do that, especially with everything that's going on now. But, you know, we should, I think we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> and I, I really hope I haven't been like rambling too much. Because <laughs> it's like such a 
and it just has so many different dimensions yeah. uh, and it's kind of fascinating to uh to just kind of explore all the different angles so anyhow well thank you very much for having me i really appreciate it thanks for being here and let people know where they can find you Oh, oh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Kathy Young 63 and that's C-A-T-H-Y-Y-O-U-N-G-6-3. And you can also find me at um, Arc Digital, and the, uh, uh, the URL is ArcDigital, A-R-C-D-I-G-I-T-A-L dot media. You can also find me at reason.com. And, well, you can find me really in a bunch of different places. Uh, but, you know, if you if you find me on Twitter and you can also find me on Facebook, uh, by the way. Uh, but, yeah, if you find me on either Twitter or Facebook, you will uh, you will generally find uh, most of my articles. So, uh, and I, I do have a website that I should get updated, but it's like at this time, it, like it hasn't been updated in over 10 years and I really should do something about that. But, you know, but actually it does have a lot of my old articles. So it's, um, if you're interested, it's kathyyoung.net. So that's it. All right. Well, thanks for sitting down and having a chat with me. Absolutely. Thank you. So that was my interview with Kathy Young. Um, obviously, we covered a lot of ground there. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, I really enjoyed having that conversation. And I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. Um, I will put the link to the piece in question in the show notes so that you guys can go read it for yourself. And so as always, if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.